Hello, and welcome to the Inside Writing Podcast. I am your host, Josh Sippy. As a reminder, all of these episodes are recorded live Wednesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern time. You can sign up on the Gotham Writers website for free. Now then, on to the show. Today, we're talking with Keaton Wooden. Keaton is a Rhodes and Emmy-nominated screenwriter, composer, and social impact producer. Notable works include the award-winning trans-Civil War musical Albert Cashier with the producers of the Carol King musical, social justice film Kenneth Chamberlain with executive producer Morgan Freeman, and the single Sirens, sung by Hamilton star Javier Munoz, to raise funds for first responders. Wooden has ser- Wood serves around the country as a creative consultant and speaker on creative artist feedback, semiotics, and ethnography, and social impact producing and fundraising. Keaton, welcome to the show. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> Good. Thanks for being here, Keaton. So, Keaton, I want to start uh, where we've started every episode this season, which is I want to ask you if you could pinpoint like a breaking in moment where you felt like you were really there as a creative. Was there a moment for you where kind of like an aha, I'm kind of doing what I want to be doing now? Um, you know, I, I, you asked me this question. And I, I think it was, it was important that um, I got to speak to one time um, Kyle Killen, he is the creator of the Halo series that just came out. And mm. I met him about 10 years ago now. And I had heard a legend about him breaking in um, as a writer. And when I told him about that legend, he mentioned, he, he said, yeah, that was just about 10 years ago. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was this, this interesting thing that I think for a lot of people, there's, there's quotes from like Steven Spielberg even saying, I wonder if I've ever made it, which is mm. terrifying. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I don't feel like there's a, a making it energy necessarily there's there certainly seems to be instead of a glass ceiling of a very thick kind of sticky goo you just kind of shove your way through slowly (laughs) at 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 even remotely near the top um but I, i will admit the first time i ever felt like i was doing this correctly was that i had said i wanted art to be my job that's what I said mm-hmm. in college. And then one day I was working on a project and I just didn't feel like doing it. It felt like a slog. It felt like I had to wake up every morning and show up and do the work, even though I didn't enjoy it, just type out pages and turn it back. And then I thought, oh, that's a job. <laughs> and I, and I, I thought, oh my goodness, this is my job. And I felt so excited to be bored, um, <laughs> which is the funny way of putting that. But that was the moment I actually felt like I was close, was that I, mm-hmm. I was doing something like it, that it felt like a job mm-hmm. instead of just like for fun. And did things change for you after that moment or, or was it just kind of like another step in the process? I mean, the work-wise, nothing changed at all. Um, my mentality changed quite a bit. Um, and I'm, I'm not certain every writer is this way. Um, I'm a huge nerd for um, different YouTube series. There's one where this Japanese woodcarver carves like the great wave okasai's great wave Mm -hmm. that really famous one Mm -hmm. and he talks about the difference between being an artist and a craftsman um because he had to he had to recarve the same thing over and over again and and his his mentor who was dying at that point said that i'm a craftsman um and that was interesting to realize that you know at a certain point the work is just having a skill set getting good at that skill set and doing whatever you're hired to do Mm. Um, and so for me, that did change my mentality going forward at all times when I've had scripts where, you know, I wrote this very beautiful, small script that then when we sent it to a major studio, they said, can you add aliens? Um, which is not a joke. Um, but we, we had to decide, okay, how can I, as a craftsperson add aliens to this script? And it was, it was just very funny, but that, you know, for me, that, that was when my mentality changed. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, 
you, your, your name has been attached to so many projects, it's hard to even pick a starting point. But I want to start with Albert Cashier, uh, the, the civility of Albert Cashier is the full name of the musical. So what role did you play in the production of this story? Um, so in Chicago, I made good friends with an activist, lawyer and writer named J. Paul Deritani. Um, Jay uh, has written lots of scripts um, and written lots of sort of impassioned speeches. He, he's run for Senate a couple of times and um, he's, you know, he does these class action lawsuits to defend childcare, um, mm. uh, kids suffering in the foster care system. He, he came to me as a director um, and handed me a play that he'd written um, about a person from the Civil War who was assigned female at birth who joined the war as Albert Cashier and then stayed Albert for 50 years. And I read that and I told him, oh, that's a musical. Uh, and he didn't necessarily believe me, but I just said, it's a great musical. You just haven't heard any songs yet. Um, and so we spent a long time reaching out to uh, what eventually became like one of my closest collaborators and best friends, Joe Stevens, who's in the other room because <laughs> um, we're working on a different musical right now. Um, but you know, we started working on that show and, and taking the text and the character and getting to explore a very rich inner life. Um, you know, part of that was that the essential part of the story is representation and finding people who have the same experience as Albert. Um, Joe is trans and, you know, bringing my experience from musical theater and Joe's experience from being a singer songwriter for decades touring with the Indigo Girls, we, we were able to craft a very unique sound for that show um, and partner with, you know, Jay's ingenuity of just go for it over and over again. We, we've connected to a lot of great people around that project. We actually just had our first off-Broadway concert um, at the Players Theater for that show that closed on Sunday with one of the first ever all trans cast and crews in off-Broadway history. Um, and we raised thousands of dollars for charity um, with that concert series. So it's been really special. That's awesome. I, I want to rewind one of the first things you said. You, right away, you knew this was a musical. How did, how did you know that? Um, so I, I have rules for myself about this. I actually got to write an article for the script pipeline about this, which was fun. Um, you know, I, through training or just hearing from different people, I, I have sort of a rule about the difference between musicals and plays and television and film. Um, so for me, it was that uh, plays are about ideas. Um, theater started as the dialectic between two char characters, a Socratic dialogue. Um, movies are about choices, you know, in a movie, the world is the same, then a character makes a choice and then everything changes. And if this character wins, it's a comedy. And if the character dies, it's a tragedy. <laughs> um, in television, it's about worlds. You know, television is about a particular environment that you honestly don't want to see change that much. And the second, you know, the second the environment changes, you feel like you've been cheated a little bit. Like, you know, Gilligan's Island only lasts so long when they're not on Gilligan's Island. Um, and then musicals are about feelings. They're about this moment in a standard story where reality itself um, no longer is a satisfying way of expressing yourself, whether that's because the world around you, no one can actually hear what you have to say through a limitation of language, or in the case of Albert Cashier, Albert was hiding a secret. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> he needed somewhere to, to talk. And so uh, musicals as a, an American art form is such that when reality is too big and too expansive and too expressive. We lift out of reality into a world of song and dance and fantasticalness. But that's a, it's an oversimplification to the art form, but that's, that's sort of the rule. It has to sing. And, and I imagine you, you read tons of scripts. So what was it when you read this one that you were like, oh, this is one I have to, I have to work on? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think the original text that Jay gave us 
us all was really special because this person very clearly had a driving force that they couldn't tell anyone in the story about. Mm-hmm. You know, Al- Albert had a reason for joining the war. Um, he had a reason for, you know, despite being assigned female at birth, needing needing to find his true self in in Albert. Um, we've actually talked to Albert's ancestors uh, who live in Ireland now. Um, it's really interesting. And, you know, for us, musicals have this idea of spectacle and soliloquy. Spectacle being, you know, the, the ex, you know, dancing and explosions, Les Miserables, and this show is the Civil War. So we get that. And then soliloquy is the, I, I need to talk to someone. And so I'll talk, I'll talk to the air and the air will hear me. And that, and then, you know, once, I don't know if you've ever yelled really loudly. It starts to sound like notes. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that was sort of the journey that we had for that. And, and how did you start formulating the music? I'm curious to see it from your lens as somebody who is so connected to music. Did the songs like start forming themselves in your head? How did you go about creating the songs for the story? Um, you know, there's certain moments in a, in a story that lend themselves to music. Um, <clears throat> the way I describe it is like a horror film is a roller coaster where the loop-de-loops are getting scared. Um, and a musical is a roller coaster where the loop-de-loops are music and song. So, you know, major decision points, um, major conflicts, um, stage pictures, big ideas, big moments of confusion. I think there's a line that says every song in a musical is a seduction, a decision, or an argument. Um, I don't know if that's fully the, the answer, but for us, we, we looked at the play and we said, this should be a song. You know, Albert, mm-hmm. is, um, Albert is sitting over the bodies of his dead friends and is, um, becomes disillusioned with war. Albert mm-hmm. is standing across from his best friend and his best friend just proposed marriage and they're having an argument. Albert is, you know, the best friend is searching behind enemy lines for Albert and isn't sure if he's in love with him or not and what that means. Like, you know, those are all great things. Um, And then we, you know, it all started by looking at Joe's old catalog as a musician. He has hundreds of songs he's written. Um, Mm -hmm. He's a master songwriter and and he very graciously every now and then would let me, um, you know, I'd take an old song that he'd written and, and say, hey, can I, can I play with this and see if it applies to this show? And sometimes it worked and sometimes it was terrible. Um, and he would tell me which one it was. <laughs> and, and, and then he and I started writing more and more shows together. We're on our fourth show now. Um, and I'm on my seventh musical total. So I want to ask about your collaboration with Joe, mostly because, you know, as writers, it's such a solitary art. So you have primarily, it sounds like, primarily worked in collaborative form. So let me ask you first, how did you find Joe and how did, how did your two artistic visions sort of meld to the point that you are a tandem at this point? Um, yeah, I mean, I work, I've only written two or three things without another collaborator. Um, mm. I also work very closely with Grayson Coleman Selby. Um, I work with Donald Getschewitz. I'm working on a new piece with TX Watson out of Boston, out of Massachusetts. Um, for me, it, it, it takes a personality on both sides where the goal is you respect the other person's, um, you, you respect the things that thrill them and excite them. And you see them at their most excited and you're into it and you love it. And then they, they respect the same in you. And so then when you're coming up with ideas, if someone says, oh, that doesn't excite me, then you know that you wanna make them excited and you, want, and you know they wanna make you excited. It's, it never becomes a game of, oh, they didn't like it. What's wrong with me? Um, which is really hard. Um, and I've, I've tried collaborations where that was kind of the mentality and it got really difficult. 
um, you know, with, with Joe and I, we are both the kind of person who goes, ah, oh, that doesn't feel right. We both go, Ooh, what about this? What about mm-hmm. this? It's like this constant creating of comfort and you do have to respect the other person's taste. You have to really like what they're doing already. But I find, especially in the, in the form of collaboration, it's sort of one plus one equals three. Um, no, nothing I make on my own will be as good as something I make with somebody else just ever. And there are times where I have a very particular thing that, I, that I'm very excited about. And I will come to a collaborator and say, this one matters to me. This one is the, this one for, you know, something about it is really important to me. I need you to get excited with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll play that game, you know? And, and, we, and I think with each project, we, I try to give, both of us try to give each other on, with every collaborator, two or three, this one matters. Mm. And, and we may not even understand why. Um, Joe and I have a song on our next show, Hills on Fire, where um, we, we actually disagree on what a particular line means, but we both feel so strongly what it means that we don't even, care, we don't even need to argue about it. Mm. Um, people have tried to change it and they say, what does it mean? And we just go, it's, it's good, just leave it alone. Um, <laughs> and so there's that, there is that imperceptibleness and trusting the intuition of another person. Um, and it takes both. You have to trust their intuition and they have to trust yours. And then that's when, you know, these two ideas come together for a third idea. It's really special. And are you just a natural at collaboration or did it take some time acclimating to trust other people with the vision of a full project? I mean, I think it does take a certain personality to enjoy collaboration. Um, mm-hmm. What I have found is you work faster, um, you dig deeper. And b- basically what I can do by myself would take what I can do with a collaborator would take three drafts by myself. Um, the first draft of the collaborator is like the third draft by myself. Um, and so I, I'm just an efficient person. So I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> I, I really just want to be more and more. Um, I want to create more and more opportunities. And so, you know, to do is if I find someone who's writing or ideas, I really like, I ask, Hey, can we work on something together? It's, I don't know. It's, it's sort of like the artistic equivalent of asking someone on a date, um and that is you know the the biggest compliment i can give to another artist in a artistic romantic way is like we should make something together (laughs) um so yeah gotcha so albert cashier it won awards in chicago it was just like you mentioned it was at the players theater here in new york how does it feel to see something you've worked on reach such a claim it does is it exactly as you envisioned it would be um sorry my hair is a mess uh (laughs) it's I think it's different. Um, we, for that show in particular, we're not trying to get a claim. We're trying to reach a very particular audience. Mm. Um, it matters a great deal to us that that show is about representation, um, is about a moment in history, about a person who resonates deeply with today. Um, and for us, you know, the win is that we have a diehard Tumblr fandom, um, you know, we have this adorable, amazing group of teenagers who are obsessed with our show on Tumblr. And I, hi, Tumblr writes. I'm sorry if I, whenever I forget to respond to your messages, I don't know how to use Tumblr. Um, but that show in particular, we have, we have a, what I would describe as a why, a, a measure of success that is deeper than even the people that come on board, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been very fortunate and blessed because of the trio that we have together and the different opportunities that each of us present and can bring. Um, but yeah, I mean, for, for us, you know, we did a reading with uh, Tony Winter, Michael Mayer, 
uh, who, who directed Spring Awakening. Um, and he was, you know, he was a genius. Um, we, we, we got whipped into shape and made something even better out of it. Um, and, and, though, and that was rewarding for me as an artist, as a person who wanted to get better at a craft, you know, as a craft person, I got better at my craft by being in that room. As an artist, um, nothing beats that I get sent every six weeks um, a teenager who had who I have personally mailed the sheet music of Bullet in a Gun to, which is the the I Want song of Albert Cashier, and these kids perform it at their local talent show. Um, we ball our eyes out. <laughs> um, we and we know that that's going to do more work candidly than a million dollars in a in a theater in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. So I have to ask, and I know you're not looking for a claim with this show, but given the successes that it's found, I'm always curious with creators, if there was a point in the creative process where you knew that this was something special, that this was going places, or, or did it not really dawn on you until it all started happening? Um, we, oh, the, there was a question. J. Paul Deratani was our third collaborator. J. Paul Deratani, Coyote, Joe Stevens, and myself. Um, I think we realized there was some magic in it when Danny Shea, who was a finalist at America's Got Talent, came in and sang a song for us. Uh, <laughs> Danny is uh, a profoundly gifted performer, uh, musician, and he is, he's just, I can't, can I swear on this podcast? Yes, yeah, you can. Great. He's a badass. Um, <laughs> he's just so great. <clears throat> and the first time he kind of jammed with it on his guitar and then we did, a, we did a day where Joe and Danny sang it together. Um, and all of a sudden we, you know, that's when people started to compare it to Hamilton or started to compare it to something that had electricity. Mm. Um, and we've come a long way since then, but that song has barely changed. And the energy of that song, I think is what keeps the whole show going is this, we are aware that there's lightning in that, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's, that's when we, Christine Russell from who produced uh, beautiful, the Carol King musical and head over heels came on board um, you know, Christine put us in touch with Michael Mayer, has put us in touch with a lot of people. Um, and, you know, I guess, I don't know, there's, there have been shows I've written that I think are technically better, if this makes sense. They have, they have a better craft or a better constructed whatever. Um, but I have found that that work that is generous, um, that's, you know, you mentioned my work as a social impact producer, that that's the biggest part of that to me is when, when art that is generous is better art. Mm-hmm in my opinion, mm-hmm. at least, especially right now. Sure. So I could literally talk about Albert Cash here all day because it's such a great show, but I want to move into more of your projects. Um, so this isn't the only musical you've worked on. Obviously, you mentioned Hills on Fire. You've got Paper or Plastic. You've got more out there. D- does the creation process, the making music for it, does it get easier the more that you make or does each show present its own challenges? I mean, it technically gets, it gets easier to write a song. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, that is a skill that you can acquire and you can hammer out a ditty in five minutes. And then you, the more you do that, the more you notice, oh, this is a very boring chord progression that I've used six times. Um, <laughs> you know, this, this idea could be done better. So it's, there's a, there's a knowledge of songwriting that is just, um, you know, I learned, I learned most of it from Joe. Um, you know, I can't read sheet music. Um, I can't uh, play an instrument at all. Um, mm. And so I, I program everything at this table using Logic, uh, Logic Pro. And so I can do it all digitally and then add loops and harmonies and everything. And that's how we create things. And then we bring, we take things out to amazing uh, chart writers like Wes Smith or Dan Pardo um, who do charts and arrangements and create 
just brilliant versions of our work. Um, and that's kind of the best part of it. Mm -hmm. um, I find that fascinating that you don't play music. You can't read sheet music. How, where did you find the passion for music? I just grew up. My mom was a singer. My dad's a pastor. My mom sang in the church choir, sang the Sandy Patty songs, if you know who that yes. is. Um, and, you know, it was a, a really positive thing for me. Music, music was just a way of expressing myself. Mm -hmm. um, that was Joe. Um, and, and so a lot of this came down to when Joe and I would start writing, it would be, you know, he would start playing a, a guitar riff and I would just start singing something. Mm. Um, sometimes it would be notes and sometimes it would be, you know, um, a riff. Sometimes it would be a different part, instrument part that we didn't realize it until we brought in more musicians. And they said, oh, can I play that on the piano? I was like, oh, thank God. Cause I'm just singing <laughs> six parts in my head and I'm drumming my hands on the thing. And, you know, I just finished my first musical where I didn't have a collaborator. I just started mm. working on that. We, I did a residency in California and that was the first time I, I had no one to help me and so I had to go find the music figure out how to make it and then write a song that way it it took six times as long it was awful um but we got we got it done we wrote the whole show uh but you know for me there's something very special about just kind of the work you get to do in exploration like that sure so we've talked about the musical side I want to get into when you started writing the words the scripts the stories when did that enter the picture of your creativity um, <clears throat> I started writing before I started doing music, actually. Mm. Um, you know, I've done a little bit of writing growing up. I went to Ball State University where I studied directing and did some of the telecommunications department. Um, and part of that, I didn't realize at the time, but it was a writer's room for a web series. I was one of the writers on a web series that I ended up starring in. And, um, <clears throat> and I love that environment. One of my goals is to join a writer's room coming up. Um, because I love that collaborative environment and, and helping someone else make their idea happen. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm from Chicago and that's what we do is everyone gets to play. Um, but I, I wrote scripts for a long time. The first script I wrote um, is, is a really good pitch, but I'm certain the script is terrible. Uh, <laughs> but I, I was so scared to write it that I, I knew I would edit myself as I was writing. So what I did was I typed it in Microsoft Word instead of Final Draft or any other program. I typed it just long form, every word, one indented line. And then I would print the pages I wrote that day and I would delete the file every night. <laughs> um, and I still only have one copy of that script. I have the copy I printed. Um, and in, in big word, bold words in the watermark, it said, this is, this is a terrible draft. It's, it, says in, it says in sort of a diagonal watermark, vomit draft, terrible draft, just giving myself permission to be bad. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I had a, to, to quote your moment about breaking, breaking in, I had a moment where I was um, an executive assistant on a, on a show at 20th Century Fox. There were some very generous writers, very generous um, creatives and executives who at the end of that, um, every single one of them called their agent for me. I could not believe it. Um, and I had one really good script. Um, it was really well written. It had a lot of good mojo behind it. It had won some awards. And I got to meet with every agency you can name and they said, this is a great script. What else do you have? And I went, oh, that's yeah. it. Um, <laughs> and then they just never called me back. And that was 10 years ago. Uh, it was, <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry. One second. Blam. This is better. Yes. Um, <clears throat> you know, for me, it was really hard to admit that I had messed up um, and that I had I just wasn't ready to do everything in the process yet. Um, and then it became a, oh, okay, I need to write 
a lot, a lot, mm-hmm. a lot. And so I started writing, you know, two scripts a year, two features a year, a pilot a year and whatever else I could get done. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I have, you know, a very large list of stuff and I'm just now going back out to get an agent. I still don't have one. Mm-hmm. Um, I, have, I have a theatrical agent, uh, I should say, named Susan German. She's wonderful, but I, I don't have anyone in the television and, and film world. And that's a gold mine. And, you know, I've managed to make connections and attach projects based on just my work alone. Mm-hmm. So, but that process, I, I started before I wrote musicals at all. I'm curious how that creation process differs. Do you find more satisfaction writing the stories or writing the songs or do they both kind of just both itch that urge? I mean, I find screenwriting to be more formulaic, which I don't find bad. <clears throat> I think musicals are very formulaic too. Um, I think structure is a way that we create expectations and expectations and payoff is all of writing. Mm-hmm. And, and more importantly, expectations within genre is the way that you keep people interested to say whatever ideas you want. Um, it's just, you know, if you, if you opened a musical and didn't have any songs because you really thought it was a musical, despite the fact that it didn't follow the rules of a musical that, you know, you should just not call it that that's fine. But if your goal is to break into a certain arena, you follow as many rules as you can and say one exciting thing within the rules. And that was, you know, that's what I try to do. And it helps me a lot. Mm-hmm. I want to shift gears a bit and talk mm-hmm. about another project that you've worked on, which is the killing of Kenneth Chamberlain. Yes. What role did you play in making this story happen? And, and, and <clears throat> you know, tell us a bit about the medium that it occurred in and, and how that production process went. Yeah. So um, the killing of Kenneth Chamberlain was written and directed by my friend, David Medell, um, lead produced by Enrico Natale, who's a, a genius producer out of Los Angeles and the West coast. I produced David's first movie when I was 23 at a college, which we sold to Lifetime. Um, it was about a family um, and a brother and sister, and the brother um, is severely affected by autism. He's nonverbal, and the sister is his caretaker. And so we worked on that project together. And you know, my sister at the time was an autism therapist, and so we, you know, that mattered a lot to me to tell a, a real story. Um, Kenneth Chamberlain is based on the real events um, of an army veteran who um, had some mental instability just from the war and life and accidentally hit his life alert button and the police showed up and uh, they, the police were not equipped whatsoever to handle a person who was mentally ill. And um, in their effort to force their way into his home, they killed him Um, there. That's the nicest way I can put that. Uh, And we, we, David worked very closely with Kenneth Chamberlain, senior son, Kenneth Chamberlain, Jr. He did um, archival research. He, he received, the recordings of the phone calls of Kenneth's passing. And for us, it was a very big deal to do justice to the, to the story of Kenneth. And not every story of, you know, of marginalized people suffering is an essential thing to tell, but this was a story that Kenneth's family asked to be told. Mm. No one was paying attention. No one even seemed to care that Kenneth passed away. And so David is um, a re- you know, an, a realist filmmaker. So he just made a movie that was the exact length of time from the moment Kenneth's phone rang uh, to the moment he passed. And it, you know, it, it's it's a terrifying, gripping thing, um, and gripping not in an entertaining sense. Um, it it is a hard film to, to to talk through. But my job in that process was one of my expertises is in tax credits, production, and uh, festivals. Um, so when David and Enrico started on that project. They asked me to run the, the Illinois tax credit. <clears throat> There's a whole complicated process to that. That's something I spent a long, long time on. 
I work in tax credits in Broadway, in New York, in Illinois. And we worked on that. And then when the film got on the awesome film festival, I told them, great, we're going to do an awards campaign um, because I work in theater. So I know how you make an event, but more importantly, because my priority as a producer, as a social impact producer is that we don't make art about social change unless it is creating social change. Mm. So <clears throat> I, I knew that every talk back that happens at a film festival is usually a Q and a, um, congratulating the, the artists for making a, a hard, hard made film. That's great. But if you're going to make a film about a marginalized person, about black lives matter, you are not going to talk about your bleeping cameras and, mm -hmm. or how much money it costs. So we, um, we called black lives matter, Austin, we called the Austin justice coalition. We called, um, defund the police Austin, and we gave them our talkbacks. So every talk back at Austin was for our film was actually a round table discussion, about um, police uses of force in communities of color and how how they are affected, how they could be, you know, how they need to be improved or how they need to be adjusted severely, um, and that gained us a huge amount of support, you know, in from the audience. And then we ended up winning the audience award and the jury award. And that's when Morgan Freeman found out about the film and joined on as an executive producer, um, <clears throat> you know. And that was a really special thing. And that was a culmination of you know David's job of verisimilitude and Rico's job of making a harrowing film for no money um, and, and, you know, getting to participate with those artists as a producer who focuses on filmmaking that, that is aimed towards social justice and, and sort of adjusting the production means to impact the community that they're intending to serve. You know, I find it both interesting and admirable that all these projects you work on, there's this common thing of, of having that social justice, social change element. Has that always been a part of your creative vision or when did that, connect to what you wanted to do as an artist? Yeah, I mean, I think I've certainly written things that didn't have a social bent, but I'll be honest, just even I had trouble caring about them. Um, mm. You know, my father's a minister. We grew up, you know, doing soup kitchens. We grew up caring for people. And I, I think we are in a time in the world where every resource needs to go towards helping people. Um, yeah. It just is necessary. And so, you know, I have, I have adorable scripts about aliens <clears throat> that are very fun, um, <laughs> but those don't get made. What's funny, you know, um, those, the projects that have consistently been made have been the ones where people realize that if they help on this project, they could save someone's life. Mm -hmm. If they help on this project, they could, you know, clothe and house uh, an unhoused person. Um, you know, I think for me very quickly, I realized that number one there, it's easier to make them. There's more funding for them. Even there's better financing models, which if I'm, you know, taking off my creative hat and putting on my sort of my day job, which is line producing and <clears throat> production management, those films are easier to get made. And even financing wise, even candidly, the, uh, getting talent attached. Everyone mm. is excited about helping people. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I have found myself even, you know, scripts I've written that were very heartfelt, but didn't help people. I couldn't justify asking for money for them when I knew that there was a, a project that I was also working on that, you know, could, you know, could voice, give a voice to a person who's nonverbal with autism mm -hmm. um, or, to, you know, the, these kinds of things that could have actual lasting, meaningful change. Um, so there's an interesting version of that, that artistically, it just rewards me personally better. Um, mm -hmm. And even as a producer, as a line producer, who's focused on budgets 
and schedules and making things on time and under budget that candidly, those films are easier to make. People want to help you make them and, and for good reason, because they deserve it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel very lucky that that's the time we live in actually. Mm-hmm. So let me get one more question here and then we'll get some audience Q and A. Uh, your portfolio is very diverse. I mean, you've got the musicals, the plays, the TV, the film, you cover the spectrum. Do, do you find it easy shifting between mediums or, or is it still a challenge to you? I think it's just because I'm a very big structure nut. Mm. You know, I'm to, to me, they're, they're all the same thing. They're just structures. And so I, you know, what really broke my brain into the right way <clears throat> was making a short film um, with producer and writer and star Emily Bennett, who's a genius uh, horror film creator. Um, And she asked me to produce a short horror film of hers. And it helped me understand how everything is just the same thing. All of these stories, musicals, TV, film, plays are just different forms of storytelling using the same tools for different effects. Mm. Um, So what's fun for me is shifting back and forth. It's very fun. You know, right now on, on a given day, I will wake up, have to work on a song for a musical, have to work on an outline or a scene of dialogue for a feature and usually, you know, pitch a TV show. I feel like it's the, that's the order. Um, today I got to pitch a TV show uh, this afternoon. I got to, um, we're going, we're outlining a musical tonight and I, I got to work on a, a short film that I'll be producing in the fall. Like that mm. was my day um, so far. That's an exciting day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fun. <laughs> All right, so let's get some audience Q&A in here. Uh, first question, Keaton, as a composer, do you prefer to have lyrics written for a show or is it best to allow the composer to, te- to transcribe a script to a musical and or music? You know, I don't know how anyone else does this, but I have actually never, we, we write the music and lyrics at the same time. So I, I do know there are some people that write lyrics without music. I don't know how they do it. They must be geniuses. It makes no sense to me. Um, but for us... You know, for for Joe and I, he'll just start strumming on the guitar and I'll start saying words or he'll start saying words. And so they're really at the exact same time. But we know what the song's about for Grayson Coleman Selby and I, you know, we'll have a a very strong outline and we'll pick a genre that we want to work in. And so we may have a lot of the music kind of done. But the second we have a couple notes, we already know what it's about. Um you know, and, and sometimes it's, you know, it'll start with a riff, a musical riff, or it'll start with a, a lyric that we really like. One time Joe and I wrote a whole song where the only thing we knew is that the, when the chorus played, the word rain kept getting said, and we had no idea why <laughs> that we just knew, we just knew the song was the rain. And if you, if we're ever so lucky that Hills on Fire goes to Broadway, you can, you can quote me that, that that's the nonsense that that was the third song of the show. <laughs> I love it. Uh, next question, very simple question, uh, regarding the script where you were told to add aliens, did you add aliens? Oh yeah. Um, (laughs) oh, one second. This is all going to explode. One moment. Great. Um, yeah. I mean, of course I did. I was hired to write, (laughs) um, you know, we, the studio was interested in the script. They loved the characters. And I think for me, what was really important, I don't, I don't know if I made this up or someone just told it to me, but the, the phrase is to trust the prescription, not the diagnosis. Mm. Um, you know, being told to add aliens meant that they were fixing something. It wasn't just add aliens. Although sometimes that is the reason because the market says add aliens and that's fine. But candidly, they wouldn't, if, if you had a, a script that was, that had the thing that was missing, they would just pass. They mm. wouldn't try to add aliens. And 
unless they just love it so much. They're like, can you, you know, I've been asked on a script, can you make this a Christmas movie? Cause I love it, but I only have funding for Christmas movies right now. <laughs> and that's not because, you know, that's just the market. Um, but for that one, it took me a minute cause I was really mad. Um, and what I ended up doing was I went back and wrote down <clears throat> why I was writing the script. Um, and I can't talk about that script cause it's still in development and has some cool people attached, but um, we, myself and Donald Getshevitz wrote down our reasons for writing it. And it was because we wanted to see ordinary people become heroes. Um, and I realized it was not because we wanted to see ordinary people become heroes that don't see aliens in the third act. That was not, <laughs> that wasn't the reason I wrote it. And so I was like, well, I can, I can, and I said, we will add aliens. We said this to the executives, like we will add aliens if the story can still be about that. Mm. If not, we will write you a beautiful story about aliens. It just isn't this <laughs> script. Um, <clears throat> And so we wrote about ordinary people who meet aliens and become heroes. Like that's what it became, um, you know? And so the prescription of that, though, was that the thing that was missing was the story for, you know, they, they were able to identify that the story was missing an underlying bones. There was, there wasn't a reason the story was happening at the end. There was a reason mm. at the beginning, but there wasn't an underlying guiding force that was propelling us forward. And so they, they, picked aliens, but the actual prescription was you need a guiding force to keep the story going mm. or else, or else we, we get started and we like, you don't have a reason for it to end. And that's important. Yeah. <clears throat> Next question. When you work on a musical, is all your work complete before casting rehearsals, etc., or are you needed during production? Um, musicals are rewritten on opening night. Like they don't ever stop ever. Uh, you will do a draft. And when the draft is done, if you have, if you wrote the sheet music, you'll go straight to a reading. And if you haven't, you'll hire a charter and then you will do what's called a 29 hour reading, or you'll do a festival reading to hear it out loud. If you are very lucky, someone will give you money to continue it or a regional theater that, that thinks that this musical will give them grant money. Um, we'll do it as well. Um, but you know, you, you will rewrite the songs. You'll do a draft. Certainly everything has to be done before you can do a reading, but you will not do, you will never be done writing it ever. Mm. <laughs> I like that. Uh, next question, a big picture question. What was the biggest challenge you had to overcome on your journey to becoming a writer? I think just being bad at it. Um, what I mean by that is I'm still bad at a lot of things. Like I need to read sheet music. I need to act. I need to learn how to do that. That's not an acceptable thing. Um, I once heard someone say, love something so much that you're willing to be bad at it. Um, and, you know, in, in high school, I was, I'll, I'll use this example. In high school, I was a football player um, and I was forced through random occurrences to be the place kicker for our football team. I was a running back too, but I had to kick. And there was a game where we scored seven touchdowns and I missed seven field goals and they had to score an extra touchdown to catch up. And then, I, and all I had to do then was make that extra field goal. And I missed that one too. And so we lost the game because I missed eight kicks in the game. And so from that day on every morning before practice, I kicked a hundred footballs a day. Um, because I don't know why, but I was interested in getting better at that. So it was a skill I developed. Mm. Um, I think I'm just now competent at writing mm. is what I would say. I think I am just now competent at writing good stories and knowing how to insert conflict and find tension quickly, how to, how to identify 
uh, something that would propel the plot or identify why a note is good. But, you know, I'll give the example that when we worked with Michael Mayer on Albert Cashier, he made a suggestion that made no sense to me and I did not like it. And then, and I was like, well, he, he has more Tonys than I have cars. So, you know, I'll do it. And then we did it and it worked really well. And it was Mm -hmm. the first time in a while that I realized, oh shoot, this person is way smarter than me. Um, And there's so much I don't know. And instead of being beaten up by that, I just got really excited. (laughs) Um, I think you have to be really excited to be bad at things Mm. Um, because, because getting notes just means that they want to help. Like the people that if, if someone doesn't give you notes, that's, that's death. If someone doesn't give you advice, that is death. If someone gives you advice, um, that is them saying, I want to help. Mm. And if you don't listen, um, then they will never give you advice again. And that's when you know that they gave up. Um, so I get a lot of advice <laughs> and, and it's, you know, cause I don't know how to do a lot of stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, um, so that, that'd be my thought. My, my biggest challenge was just the first time I wrote a song and it was really bad. I almost, I didn't write for like 10 years. Mm-hmm. I think I was in high school and I wrote a bad song. Um, but I, I met a sophomore when I was teaching at UC Davis, um, this last year, just a week ago. And she writes a song every week and, and she's very talented, but like, they're not all going to be great. And I told her, dude, it does not matter. Write 200 songs and you will be amazing at this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. So that, that's good to me is just, you know, being bad at things is such a gift. Mm-hmm. I love that. Uh, how, next question from the audience. How are you paid for working on a musical? Is it contract ah! grant work hourly per page? Next question. I was kidding. <laughs> kidding. Um, you don't get paid a lot. Um, sometimes a, a deal will be set up that the lead producer will pay you on commission against royalties, but that's very rare. Um, that's why there's a lot of residencies for musicals. Um, and we have not had a lot of luck. Uh, sometimes, you know, we were very lucky that Albert Cashier um, received financial backing early on and that's let, given us time. Um, but for, for every other musical, we've relied on the kindness of universities, grants, um, residency productions, um, and other artists to give us time and space. You know, musicals, I think, are the thing that takes so much time to work on and so much work that you basically have to do it in your free time in a weird way. And I think as well, the lesson I am still learning is that you're better off making a piece of art that you can put on in your living room and invite people once a week. Mm. Um, you're significantly better off. Cause I, you know, that script that added aliens, we got the note to add aliens four years ago. That script is still doing well by Hollywood standards and we are nowhere near getting it made. It's, but it's still doing very well. It is still circulating. It is still getting notes, still getting attachments. Mm. It, and it will cost $50 million. Um, and we, the project getting to do this concert reading of Albert cashier cost $20,000. Mm. Um, and more people saw it. I've gotten more meetings from that event. Um, and, and, and our work has been seen by more people than that aliens movie, even though, you know, plenty of executives have seen it and love it, but uh, you know, human beings that I, that at least to a degree, the goal of art is to, is to share something you believe with other people and to hopefully the way that you express it gives them an insight, mm-hmm. like you are better off doing it in a good way, like musicals are so great because you can write a song and put it on TikTok and get feedback. And that's not an insult. That's actually how, you know, that's how the Bridgerton musical just won a Grammy. Um, So, you know, there are plenty of people making wild successes just by doing it 
to reach the audience instead of to reach it to be famous. I, I will say that's also a lesson I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. A lot of questions here from the audience. Next one. Can you describe line producing? Um, line producing is a particular kind of producing where your job is to look at the line item budgets in a, in a project. Um, a line item is just, you know, uh, if, if you ever go online and go to movie magic screenwriting, you can look at what a, a screen screenwriting budget looks like or a production budget looks like. And the line producer is in charge of basically translating everything that the director wants into a, a dollar amount. Um, and very often the line producer's job is to make sure things are on budget and under time or, you know, fire people, give bad news. Like I had to give a call as a line producer once to a project where the producers lost a hundred thousand um, dollars and nobody, and none of the investors knew. Uh, and, you know, that's a hard conversation, um, but that's, that's what a line producer does. Your job is to be responsible for, the way a production is translated into financial means. Mm -hmm. And then I want to ask uh, my own follow-up here, which, you know, I'm always curious how artists balance the the day job with their creative endeavors. So does yours, yours is sort of tangentially connected towards your creative endeavor. So does it, do they feed each other or do you still have to sort of disconnect from the day job to work on your creative stuff? I mean, for me, I find that doing something very, left brain helps me be braver and more, more managerial with myself as an artist. Um, that's been a really beneficial thing for me. Um, you know, sometimes I do too many projects as a line producer and then I don't get creative and sometimes I get too creative and I'm, you know, just a, a wobbling insecure mess. Um, (laughs) and being a line doing, my balance right now is producing one project every two months, which has been about right. I've done six projects since I moved to New York last year. Um, and it, it just helps me as a person be more thoughtful as a creative person as well. It helps me also know when I'm being creative, what's actually feasible. And mm-hmm. as a producer as well, the number of times that I have not called someone back because they refused to listen to the financial needs of a project we had a project that could have had a A-list movie star who just, you know, just released a couple movies this week. Um, and he would have joined if the project had been four days, if he had been, been able to do it in four days and the screenwriter demanded it be 10 days. And I, and I sort of said like, as a producer, like, Oh, you need to, you know, I understand every artistic need you have, but a business side of me is like, would you like four days with this famous person or 10 days with not this famous person? Mm-hmm. Um, and then they made their choice, but I, you know, as a producer, I thought that was a bad choice. Um, <laughs> so last two questions. First off, you've, you've had such good advice here. So many great quotes, but I want to ask you uh, for people who want to sort of follow in your footsteps and do the kind of things you've done. What's one piece of advice you would give them? Um, I think if you're under 25, say yes to everything until you're 25. Um, after you're 25, you should probably try one or two things on your own, which is fine. Um, I think also doing multiple industries allows you to piggyback off of the institutional knowledge of those industries. Um, when I go from theater to film and back and forth, um, I was able to go very fast because those two industries are so, are so connected, but also very different. Um, so a hundred thousand dollar movie is the budget of some entire theater companies in Chicago. A hundred thousand dollar movie is nothing for a movie it is an embarrassingly small movie but 
I did a hundred thousand dollar movie. And then a major theater company in Chicago asked me to be a board member. And then, then I was told I was a board member and met, you know, a bigger film producer because they respected the actors in that theater. And so all of a sudden I just kind of zigzagged up that way. Um, I just think being, and also just being the person in the room that cares about solving a problem and cares about solving a problem in a way that matters to other people. Um, It matters, even as a creative, just knowing, knowing that a producer is trying to, is trying to save money because they want your piece of art to get seen or if you're working with a collaborator, knowing that they're not saying they don't like your writing when they say that they need something in the, in the song or the, or the script, they're actually trying to let you know what matters to them. And if you, if you can translate what you're doing into an act of generosity, um, a lot of good things happen. I think my father once said, there's no limit to how high you can climb if you don't care who gets the credit. Um, <laughs> I like that. And that was really helpful for me. And Mm -hmm. and I will also say that candidly, if you want to produce, if you want to get something you've written produced very quickly, um, write it about an issue you care about, find a charity that's doing that work and offer to give them half your money Mm -hmm. um, and your ticket sales. And they will, they will give you a building for free. I have done this three times. Um, I, you know, and I, I produced an event for AIDS research in Chicago and got the coolest building I've ever seen. I've been in the penthouse of hard rock hotel for charity events like if you are generous people will will flock to you and that's really special gotcha and last but certainly not least uh this is your time to promote things where can people find you your website do you have anything to tell people to go look at anything you want to promote oh shoot um i didn't think about this at all josh that's all right. uh, <laughs> you know it, i'm very blessed that right now nothing's happening except i will say albert cashier is going to have one more performance um in Times square with playbill on the at the end of pride i don't know the exact date but playbill is throwing a pride extravaganza and the our cast for albert cashier is going to perform joe stevens is going to be live on stage um and you know if if you're interested in our work you can go to my website keatonwooden.com that's keaton like buster keaton and wooden like a table um and i have updates and things like that and you know what we're we're doing what every artist is doing we're trying to tell something meaningful in a responsible way and help people. So, you know, our next two big things are, we're going to be looking for Hills on Fire to find a reading. And I I just finished a reading, um, a new musical called Death and Harry Houdini. And we're going to do a reading in New York in a little bit. So all very exciting stuff. And I'll include links in the show notes to all the stuff that he mentioned. So if if you didn't get his address or web address or whatever, it's all going to be in the show notes. So Keaton, thank you so much for being here. This was such a great conversation. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. This was a blast. Um, and I get, and we'll have more things to hang out with on soon, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So to all of our listeners, thank you for being here. We're back same time, same place next week. And we'll see you then. Have a good rest of your day.